Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Yeah, and if you, um, I'm so glad Mark mentioned that about next week, we will gather and we will open up the scriptures and we'll look at Exodus and Leviticus and a little bit of numbers in our recap, our journey through the Bible recap. And last month we had it actually downstairs so we can involve students with that as well. I just loved the questions that these young people engaged with and that, that the rest of you engaged with. So bring your questions. And if you have questions that you want to share before that, please let us know so I can ask Pastor Tom before I get there what he thinks about some of those hard ones. Because there's a lot of weird stuff in Leviticus, okay? There's a lot of like, God, why is this here? Why do I need to know that? What are you teaching me about yourself in the middle of this? Um, I also want to say just happy anniversary to Ray and Sharon DeYoung, who I believe it was today, celebrate 64 years of marriage. Oh my word. So, yeah. So, so good. 64 years. What an incredible, incredible milestone. Ray and Sharon, thank you for your love for the Lord. Thank you for your commitment to walk after him in your marriage. Um, and then also, this has been a busy week. Uh, Friday, um, we, we got, I got to be a part of a celebration of life service for Pastor Mike, who is my first senior pastor here. And what, what an honor it is to just be able to honor um, the Lord and honor a man who, um, who, who served the Lord so faithfully. Um, as was apparently his request, there was candy, popcorn, and balloons all a part of the, the celebration. And so what an incredible way to celebrate God's goodness through him. And then on Friday night, we also had our second through fourth graders here having a... Um, having an Olympic party. Uh, Apparently one of the favorites was a bobsled on rolling carts with inner tubes and plungers going down the small little uh, uh, hill, I guess you would call it, uh, down towards the gym. And they were having a blast when we came to pick up our daughter. And so just, just, I love it. Kids matter to God and our team is just doing an amazing job at engaging kids where they're at, loving them where they're at, and helping to instill these biblical values that, that, Parents, you want to instill at home. We want to help you walk with your kids and help you raise them to love and follow Jesus. And so we're just thankful for that privilege. Last thing before we jump into Daniel chapter four is this. Uh, We have new kids sermon notes. So if you didn't get one of those when you came in, kids, hop up, go back and get one with your parents' permission. They're back by the the entryway back there. And uh, I love the photos that I received last week or the pictures that some of you drew for me last week based upon the um, scripture that we were in. So Daniel chapter four, if you are not there yet, Daniel's like almost two thirds the way through the Bible in the Old Testament. And Daniel's an incredible story and it's an incredible book of prophecy as well. So we're in Daniel chapter four today and we're going to be talking about greatness. All right, we're going to be talking about greatness. Um, today, there is a game later today that some of you may care about and others of you may not, but it's a game in which 
a lot of greatness is defined in our culture. Uh, one of the people who has been called the GOAT, the greatest of all time, when it comes to football quarterbacks, is a guy by the name of Tom Brady. Now, whether you like him or whether you don't, typically it's a very polarized opinion. Um, he's got, what, five Super Bowl rings under his belt in like 20 years, and he's going out pretty much on top of his game. Not going to win tonight because he's not playing tonight. The Bengals are playing tonight. I'm from near Cincinnati, so yeah. Who day? Yeah. <laughs> I love this. There's like silence. <laughs> like, we are not cheering for them Bengals. Yeah. We used to call them the Bungles all the time because they knew how to bungle every game. But then we do live in Michigan, so we all know about that as well, don't we? Um, yeah, so there's this path to greatness. And we can think about great people in the course of human history, all right? Just in, in a lot of times, they're, they're defined by what, they, what they've done, what they do. Here's a photo, some photos of great people. You've got people like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, pillars of statesmanship within North America, in, in the United States. You've got people like Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball, basketball player of all time. Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxers, the greatest boxer of all time. Um, you have people like Mother Teresa, known for her compassion, known to be great. You've got people like Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Marie Curie, who invented things that forever have changed how we even sit here today with lights. Right? You've got people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King who, who were great in asserting the individual um, value of all people during the civil rights movement. You have people like Elvis Presley, you know, the king of rock and roll, and Ella Fitzgerald, who, in my opinion, we can disagree if you want, the greatest jazz female singer of all time. She's just incredible, especially if you listen to the song How High the Moon, just an amazing song. Um, and then you've got people like Queen Elizabeth, states, women, and, and people who are foreign heads of state. You, you, you look at all these people and you see, wow, great, 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 great. How do you go from being the greatest person in the world? Or how do you become the greatest person in the world? See, we're looking at a story today of a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is arguably one of the greatest people in the world at this time. He is leader of the free world and or not free world. He, he is one who has incredible um, accolades of things that his establishment and his nation has built. And you look around and it's just like, wow, he's great. He's great. He's great. But here he's going to be confronted in his greatness. And, and really, what really is greatness? Is greatness defined by the things that we do? Or is it defined by whose we are? I want, I want to suggest to you today that greatness is found. Greatness is found by learning dependence on God. Greatness is found in learning dependence on God. And I use that word intentionally because I don't think dependence comes easy to a lot of us. I think dependence is one of those things that's like, ah, I don't want to be dependent. I want to be independent. I want to have my own opinion, my own mind. I want to control my destiny. I want to control my future. I, I know when I was coming out of college, getting ready for whatever God had next, it, it's this constant battle of how much do I make this happen? And I pursue this versus saying, God, where do you want me? 
And there's a balance of, of engaging in this work with God. But at the end of it, greatness is found by learning dependence on God. Why is this the case? I think it's the case because when we're dependent, the praise that comes from our lips is ascribed to the one who is worthy instead of to ourselves. So I'm going to ask you to, to remain seated um, as we read the scripture this morning and we look at Daniel chapter four. It's a bit of a long scripture read, so hang in there with me. Hopefully you have a copy of scripture right in front of you, but it's helpful for us to read the text together. So would you read with me, please? Daniel chapter four, verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the diviner priests, mediums, Chaldeans, and astrologers came in, I, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him, he came before me. I told him the dream, Belteshazzar, head of the diviners, because I know that you have a spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the air lived in its branches and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind an observer, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field, let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the man, the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the observers. The matter is a command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. He gives it to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of men over it. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have the spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered, my lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, 
whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals lived and its branches, the birds of the air lived. The tree is you, the king. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches to the sky and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw an observer, a holding one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food from the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the sentence of the Most High. And it has been passed against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle. You will be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. And he gives it to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourselves from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices, injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king exclaimed, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high is ruler over the kingdom of men and he gives it to anyone he wants. At that moment, the sentence was executed against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. These are the words of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us. Holy Spirit, would you be the teacher here this morning? Would you help us to see, God, how, how we could grow more like you? How we could trust you more in the things with, uh, that are going on in our lives? May the word speak to us today. We pray for the sake and the glory of your risen son, Jesus. All right, long story, but a great story 
full of picture. It kind of interprets itself as it goes along. So there's a few things that I want to highlight as we go through this text today. Uh, again, just a reminder, Nebuchadnezzar, he becomes the ruler. I got this question from a, from a kid last week on their sermon notes. He becomes ruler because God gave him rulership. God used Nebuchadnezzar, arguably not a very nice dude, not a godly person. He used him to come and to take his people, Israel, off into captivity because God was judging Israel because they had forsaken God. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar becomes the whole ruler of the world because the Lord handed it over to him. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tells us. In chapter 2, we're met with Nebuchadnezzar again, and he has this dream in 46, verse 46 and following. He has this dream, and there's no answers in sight. And it's Daniel's God, Belteshazzar is what he calls him, um, but Daniel's God, Yahweh, who makes known the dream through Daniel to the king. And the king recognizes, even though Daniel says, by the way, this comes from Yahweh, the king recognizes that um, Daniel's God is a revealer of mysteries. In chapter 3, last week we met Nebuchadnezzar, and he sets up his own statue for himself, for his own glory, and he brazenly asserts that no God can rescue you. And he's talking to the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, no God can rescue you from my power. Well, what ensues after that is that God rescues three men from his power. In fact, he does it, and he actually walks in and among them. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he says, didn't we put three in there? Because now I see four. See, chapter after chapter, God is revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's one of the sermon note pictures that was shared with me last week. Love it. So good. Kids, Draw, draw your pictures for today. Is great. You get to draw maybe a guy kind of acting like a cow in the middle of a field. What more could you ask for? Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, after experiencing this thing with the three men and the Holy One around them, walking in them, who is like a god, the scripture says, he, he says, don't say anything offensive about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, no other God is able to deliver like this. Well, it's interesting because in, in chapter one, he's introduced to the God who reveals. In chapter two, God reveals. In chapter three, God shows up again. And yet for Nebuchadnezzar, he seems to be more enthra- enthralled with what their God can do than for who he actually is. See, God for him does not involve a personal relationship by faith and forgiveness, Nebuchadnezzar is in many ways a practical atheist. He, he knows the wisdom of Daniel, and he, he knows that you can go to Daniel, or you can go to his three friends, and you can get what you need. But he doesn't want to go to a God who is overall. He is very practical in that sense. And so when we come to chapter 4, he has, um, beginning in verse 4, we'll come back to verses 1 through 3 at the end, And beginning in verse four, you find Nebuchadnezzar, he's at ease and he's in his palace and he is flourishing. But God again inserts himself with a dream into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And this dream alarms him. Now, just to consider the grandeur of ancient um, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has achieved a lot. Here's uh, the, the ancient entrance to the palace of Babylon. 
right? Just, it, it looks kind of crumbled and broken, but just imagine this and going through this with its wide gates, with its wide walls and its deep walls, this was a place to be in the ancient world. You look at this now, this is a more modern picture within the last few years. This is part of the reconstruction that's been done. So you can kind of see it sprawls, especially for the ancient period. And you come to um, one of the things Nebuchadnezzar is known for is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, There's a couple of different writers throughout ancient history, both in the third century and in the first century, who attest to these things being just incredible. And and they were astounded by the beauty. And this is just an an artist rendering of it. Um, And so it's, I'm sure, pales greatly in comparison to the actual thing. Ancient writers described it this way, as being filled with a lush variety of trees, herbs, vines, and shrubs, requiring substantial irrigation. And it says that the gardens were so famous that they were often included among the seven wonders of the world. This is the kind of stuff that Nebuchadnezzar spent his time in. This is the kind of stuff that he poured his heart and his soul in while he was out conquering the world and establishing his own reign. Nebuchadnezzar is likely in this story, probably towards the end of his reign. And God sends him another dream. We don't know exactly the timing of this. We know it's, it's after the three friends and it's before uh, his, the end of his reign. So it's somewhere in there, but probably towards the end, towards the latter part of his reign. And God sends him another dream. In this stage of life, Nebuchadnezzar is a person who's incredibly capable, who had built all this beauty with the work of his hands and all of his slaves, of course. Um, but he'd built all this and he found a lot of power and ease and flourishing because at the end of the day, he could go to his room and he could just sit down and he could go, ah, look at all of this that I have made. Now, this is a, a slightly different dream. God gives him a dream, which frightens him. Um, But what Nebuchadnezzar does after this is a little bit different than chapter two. He calls all the people, right? He calls the diviner priests, the mediums, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, all these people, part of his kingdom who are skilled. Again, this is the most skilled place for this kind of stuff in the ancient Near East. He calls all these people in and unlike the first time, he actually tells them the dream this time. And he says, here's my dream. Can you tell me what it means? And it says at the end of verse seven, It says, they could not make its interpretation known to me. You could also translate that, they were not making its interpretation known to me. See, the the ancient um, magicians and Chaldeans and priests and mediums and stuff, they they would have certain things, like they would have books that you'd be able to know, okay, there's a tree. Well, the tree could mean this. They don't even stab at what this is going to mean, either because they really don't know or either because they really don't want to tell him. You think about Daniel. When Daniel hears this dream, the text says that Daniel is stunned. He's stunned. And the king eventually says, you don't have to be afraid. Tell me what it means. I think these people are probably like, we don't want to tell you what this means because when they hear this dream, they see this glory and grandeur of a tree And then this tree is cut down. Who wants to tell the king of the known world at that time, your kingdom's going to be cut? I wouldn't. I don't think they did. Daniel comes in though, 
And uh, notice that he's named Belteshazzar after the name of, of Nebuchadnezzar's God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is very much a, still a pagan person. He, he does not believe in the God of Israel. But Daniel comes before him and he tells Daniel the dream. And after he shares this dream, um, it, it says it says this, it, it, Daniel, Dan, or after it says the dream, Nebuchadnezzar talks to him, Daniel's stunned, and Belteshazzar, he says, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Now, it's interesting because um, earlier in chapter two, when Daniel had experienced this dream, and, and he experienced the dream from Yahweh, he didn't experience it from Nebuchadnezzar. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar is a person who's experienced the, the power and the wisdom of God, and he's held it at arm's length. He's experienced the first dream, the fiery furnace, and his heart is, is ready to hear the answer, but his heart's not ready to engage the truth. Right? He, he wants to know what it means, but he doesn't really want to know what it means for him in its fullness. And I love it because in the middle of all this, God persists. God is a God who reveals. God is a God who continually reveals. In chapter one, he reveals. In chapter two, he reveals. In chapter three, he reveals. And in chapter four, he again reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He does not have to do this, right? There's enough in the world for Nebuchadnezzar to see you didn't make the stars, you didn't make the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not king. And yet God comes to him again out of his mercy and his grace. And he engages the ruler of the world. Aren't you glad that God does not just leave us? That he reveals himself to us. And when we don't hear it the first time or the second time or the third time, he continues to reveal himself to you and me. I'm glad for that. I, I don't know how many times in my growing up, I heard the message of the gospel and I heard the message of Jesus and I didn't respond and I didn't respond and I didn't respond and I didn't respond. But the end of it, God continued to pursue me. Daniel, here's this dream. And it's a dream about a tree that's large and tall. There's animals gathered around. There's great abundance. And the tree is at the center of everything. There's a holy one that comes down, though, and, and commands that it's cut down, uh, scattering the fruit and its animals. Quite a vivid image. I don't know if you've ever felled a tree, but if you fell a tree, especially a big tree, there's, you, you try to step out of the way of that thing coming down. But not only that, they didn't grind the stump. They didn't take the stump out. There's a stump that's left, which means that there's still some life to it. There, there, there's roots that still go down into the ground. But the tree is cut off. Now, then it goes switching in the dream. It switches in verse 16 to say, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. So there's this transition that goes from the stump to the mind of a man suggesting that the tree becomes a stump, which is also the same as the man. Daniel's response after all this, um, verse 17, I think, actually kind of um, summarizes it well. It tells the why of this. 
And it's so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. So the issue here is who is ruler over all? Who is great and who is not? It says he gives it to anyone he wants and he sets the lowliest, which, does, which means humble or unassuming over it. So we get this idea of humble versus lowly versus great kind of going on. He sets the lowliest, the humble, the unassuming over it. Daniel's response is stunned. And apparently the expression was plain to the king. The king says, Daniel, tell me what it means. Don't let it alarm you. And I, I love how Daniel responds here. Daniel, I think, has a lot of um, care and concern for the person who is his boss, the king. Daniel indicates going into this, as Nebuchadnezzar may have guessed, that Nebuchadnezzar himself is the tree. He says that your dominion has stretched far and wide, and yet there's a holy one who's come down to pass a sentence or decree against you. And here's what it means, king. You'll be driven away to live with wild animals. And it actually describes an actual psychological condition that has been documented in the, even as late as the 20th century, where someone has a mental state of like an animal, and they begin to act as though they are an animal. It's a, it's a mental illness. It's a, it's a very real thing. It's not a common thing, but it's a real thing. He says, you're going to be driven away, and you're going to act like an animal. And you're going to go from one of the grandest palaces in all the known world. And you're going to go to a field. And you're going to be on all fours. And you're going to be eating the grass. You'll feed on grass or herbage like cattle. The word grass there can refer to grass. It can refer to other vegetables or other plant-like things. So he's gone from eating all of this fine, rich food in the courts to the very lowliest of the cattle food in the fields. Why? Well, God is judging him for his pride. And in his judgment, God is being merciful to him by awakening him to his pride. Right? God is judging him for his pride. But he's also, in his mercy, awakening him to his pride. See, Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who had been given warnings and revelations and his heart continued to be hard and cold towards God's mercy. He'd rather find his satisfaction, his pleasure, his power in himself and in the flourishing and the ease of his kingdom rather than go to God. I love the way one writer puts it. John Elias, an 18th century Welsh evangelist, once used an illustration that went like this. He recalled the time when the local blacksmith, he bought a new dog. Shortly afterward, when Elias was visiting the blacksmith's shop, the, the dog could be heard barking fiercely as the blacksmith's hammer beat rhythmically on the horseshoes. Just pound after pound after pound, and the dog is kind of freaking out. After time, however, the barking became quieter and less frequent until one day Elias looked into the, smith, uh, the blacksmith's place to catch the blacksmith hammering away at the anvil pound after pound after pound, and he sees the dog asleep by the fire, asleep and calm at last. What happened in the dog's life was he became accustomed to hearing the sound. Accustomed, accustomed, accustomed. Nebuchadnezzar, time after time after time, had, been, had encountered the God of heaven. And time after time after time, he became numbed to 
God's revelation. So what does God do? God in his mercy, he shakes him proverbially and he wakes him up and judges him for his pride, but he awakens him to his pride to the ways in which Nebuchadnezzar wanted to go on his own, to the ways in which Nebuchadnezzar thought that he could make his own way instead of submitting to God, yielding to God, and letting God be king, both over the world and in his life. He had taken all this revelation from God. He had held it at arm's length. And this is not unlike many of us. We often go our own way. We, we make our kingdoms here on this earth. We may be exposed to the message of God today, yesterday, the day before, the day before that. We may have grown up within a Christian home and constantly heard about God's love and God's care and God's mercy. And yet, sometimes when we see all this stuff, we drown it out by our lifestyles. We drown it out by our grief. We drown it out by our pride. Sometimes we try to work harder. We try to fix our lives. And we say, you're right, I'm not right. And I have to do something to make it better. And so we go to behavior modification to fix our lives when scripture teaches us that there's only one way that we can become great. And that's by being dependent. There's only one way that we can experience everything God wants to do in our lives. And that's by saying, God, I'm coming to the end of myself. And submitting and yielding our lives to the king. Now, notice how Daniel responds here. In verse 19, he's stunned. But after he's stunned, he says, My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. I don't think he's just blowing smoke here. I don't think he's just trying to be like, King, I don't, want, I don't want to get on your bad side. We've seen too much of Daniel's character to think that. I think Daniel has honest affection for his king on earth. I think he cares about him despite their significant differences. So, so number one, Daniel has affection for his king. Number two, he truthfully interprets the dream. This is, this is huge. In verses 20 through 26, he, he gives him the interpretation. He, he doesn't hold back. Not just because Nebuchadnezzar wants to know, but Daniel knows, look, I'm going to share something that's not going to be very pleasant with this king, but he truthfully interprets the dream. He delivers, you put it this way, he delivers the right message with the right heart. Right? He, he delivers the right message with the right heart. It can be tempting sometimes to to want to shade or to cloud or to diminish the message because we don't want to offend someone. But it's also possible to share the right message with a heart that is bent upon their harm. No, see, the scripture reminds us that that God is patient with us. He, He desires to be in relationship with us. He meets us where we're at. He meets us with the right message in the right heart because his heart for you and for me is one of love and concern because you and I are people made in his image. Daniel delivers the right message with the right heart. The last thing I want to note about how Daniel responds here is that he offers the king spiritual advice. Look with me at verse 27. 
Verse 27 begins with a therefore. And if you look just before it, he says, you know, um, as for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, he says, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. He could have just stopped right there. Right? He, he could have just left it. But Daniel says, therefore, may my advice seem good to you. And the word there for advice is urgent counsel. Right? This isn't just take it or leave it, whatever. He is, he is urging this king to respond to the truth of God. This urgent counsel. What is the urgent counsel? What is the spiritual advice that he doesn't have to give, but he does? He says, break with your sins. Break with your sins or separate yourself from your sins. In other words, he's saying, king, you need to repent. He says, you need to repent. That's what it means. To, to break with your sins, it means stop that. He, and it's not stop that and like get all your might and just say, I'm going to stop that. He's saying, repent from your sins. Break from them. Not only that, do what is right. And he clarifies what that is for the king. He says, show mercy to the needy. You can imagine the king employed either by financial ways or by other ways, uh, he employed uh, people in his service uh, as slaves, as servants, and all these things. And, he, and Daniel says, you need to show mercy to the ones who are needy. Why? Because that reflects the heart of God. Daniel doesn't just pull that out of thin air. Showing mercy to the needy has always been a part of God's heart. So break with your sins, king. Do what's right. Show mercy to the needy. And then he says this. He says, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Now, Daniel doesn't presume what God will do, but he urges the king to do the right thing regardless. Regardless, he urges the king, do the right thing. Break with your sins. Show mercy to the needy. I love it because Daniel doesn't just care about what the king does cares about who the king is. He, he cares about his heart. He, he, as a servant of the king, mind you, a very high servant of the king, he cares about his heart. He has affection. He delivers the right message with the right heart, and he offers the spiritual advice. So you imagine, you're King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's your kingdom. The castle or the, the palace back there is Saddam Hussein's um, palace from a couple decades ago. You've got the Euphrates River in here. You've got ancient Babylon that's being re rebuilt towards the left of your screen. Nebuchadnezzar's looking out over his kingdom. He's talking with Daniel. And he's been told, look, the way you're walking is wrong. Break from it. Repent and follow Yahweh. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, this is one of the amazing things from that kingdom. The symbol of the lion, the symbol of strength. They had these, this is a, not a recreation. This is a, something that has been taken from there, put into a museum. These are tiles from ancient Babylon. The symbol of power. Nebuchadnezzar, his default is I'm going to be strong in myself. He's done it twice already, right? Chapter two, he did it. Chapter three, he did it. Chapter three, he's faced with this message. And what does he do? He doubles down. He doubles down. 
After a year, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28 says. It says at the end of 12 months, as he's walking in the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaims, is this not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? Couple of notes here. Babylon the Great, that's going to come back to us in Revelation 14 and Revelation 18. All right? It's not a good place to be when you're Babylon the Great. But notice what it says. I have built, very contrary to what it says in chapter 1, where God gave him. I have built by my vast power. Whose power? Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's strong in himself. To be a royal residence and to display what? To display my majestic glory. Whether you're the king of the known world or you're a regular person living on the streets of Zealand, Michigan, this phrase in one way, shape, or form comes out of our mouths. This phrase basically says, I am the center of my universe. What matters most is what I want. What matters most is what I need. Look at the things my hands have done. Look at my majestic power. Look at my straight A's in school. Look at my promotion. Look at my raise. Look at my family. We can begin to just put a whole bunch of things behind this and say, man, I did this all with my majestic power and my, or my vast power in my majestic glory. It doesn't have to be a palace. And it's here where God meets him. In verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven directly to Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you and the judgment of God ensues. Nebuchadnezzar is taken away. He becomes like a wild animal. He doesn't become a wild animal. He becomes like a wild animal. And in this judgment is also God's mercy to awaken him to his senses. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, seven years later, in the end of those days, in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven. He says, my sanity returned to me. And it's interesting to note with this particular type of mental illness, you still, my understanding is you still have the ability to, to, to have some degree of mental cognition. But there's a degree of sanity that returns to him here. And notice what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. That's a very different response. It's different than when he met God's dream in chapter 2. It's different than when he met the fiery furnace in chapter 3. All those things were like, wow, look at Daniel's God. And look at Shadrach Nebuchadnezzar's God. This one here. He goes, I praised the most high. You know, if you, if you write in your Bibles, circle that phrase most high. May seem like a small phrase to us, but for someone who thought he was the most high of the known world, for him to say, I praised the most high, becomes a very significant phrase 
for him. And I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. And notice what he says after that. These are words taken from Daniel chapter two. His dominion is, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Basically what he says is, look, I don't understand God, but I know one thing. He is most high and I am not. I know that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. I know that his dominion is for all time. And how could I, a person made in his image, by him with intentionality and love and care and purpose, how could I say to him, what have you done? There's a humility that comes to him as a result of God's judgment in his life. He looks up and he praises this most high supreme God. Now in verse 37, well, verse 36, his sanity returns to him and uh, and God actually restores him to the glory of his kingdom. He becomes reestablished and even more greatness came to me. How does greatness come? Nebuchadnezzar had spent all this time and all this energy and all this life building greatness for himself. And it's when he yields to God and God's work that he's really established as great. He's not established as great by what he does. He's established as great because it's what God does in and through him. Look at verse 37. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven. If you, uh, if you write in your Bibles, you can underline praise, exalt, and glorify. What I want you to know is those are active participles. In other words, the way you could also translate those is, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm praising. Continual action is what it means. Exalting and glorifying the God of heaven. God has done an amazing work in a man with a very hard heart. He's gone from, I am supreme, to now I am praising and I'm glorifying and I'm exalting the most high. Because all his works are true and his ways are just. And you could put a stamp on this last sentence. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar is one who had to learn that a much longer way than maybe some of us do. But he needed to learn this lesson and, and maybe it's a lesson we need to learn today again too. I want to go back to verse one really quickly of chapter four. Verse one is here. Verses one and three are here is kind of a, um, a prologue to all of chapter four. All right, the, the story really begins in, in verse four as it goes through all this. But at the beginning of this is something that's written by Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel has kept it here and God has preserved it in Holy Scripture. This is God breathed. This is profitable for us because here's King Nebuchadnezzar who sometime later in his life writes to every people, every nation and every language, people who live in all the earth. And what does he tell them? He says, may your prosperity increase, which is a blessing upon them. And he says this, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and the wonders the most high God has done for me. You circle in your Bible, circle four 
me. Nebuchadnezzar's life went from something that was all about him to something that was, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about how he met me. Like, you wouldn't want to know this if you wanted to keep your integrity intact. What? You went away and you were driven away and you became like an animal and you were eating grass? Can you imagine how degrading, how not king-like that is? But he notes it here. It's in the scripture. And for Nebuchadnezzar, his theme becomes, let me tell you what the Most High God has done for me. Now, this is all consistent because in verse 17, it says, um, this is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler. The word living there is plural. In other words, one of the reasons that God meets Nebuchadnezzar like this is for Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles the person who walks in his own dependence because he wants to learn greatness. He wants him to learn greatness doesn't come from your own strength. It comes from mine. It's a gift. It's a gift that you can only receive. You can't actually build it yourself to be truly great. He wants him to know that, but he doesn't want the message to stop there. He wants the message of the most high to go, not just to Nebuchadnezzar, but to all the living. That's me. That's you. That's your neighbor. That's your coworker. That's your friend at school. He wants that message to go to the living He wants the most high to be the one people first see when they look at you and when they look at me. And the path for that comes through dependence. Because greatness is found in being dependent upon the God who gives us everything we need for life and godliness. You can imagine to, to the Jewish exiles and to us, you're, 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 you know, the Jewish people, they're in exile. They feel lost and powerless in a world that is out of control around them. Different context, but it does kind of sound familiar, right? You're, you feel lost and powerless in a world out of control around you. God is saying to them through Nebuchadnezzar's story, don't worry, don't worry. I will be faithful to you. Even Nebuchadnezzar, the most high, whom you, who thinks he's the most high, is not really ruler over this world. I am still in control, he says to his people, Israel. He says, pursue me and I will, I will equip and empower you beyond your abilities to take my message of grace to the living. Who's the living in your life today who this message needs to go to? He also has the message to the king. And this message may be for us today as well. You may think, he tells the king, that you are the most powerful and important person. You may think that greatness is defined in everything you do. My friends, it's not. And as long as you and I pursue greatness in what we think this world calls great, we will always, always come up short. Later in the New Testament, it says this. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up path to greatness, friends, is dependence. Where do you need to be dependent upon God today? Where do you need to trust in that moment of God? What do I do? Or in that moment of God, I'm going to go. Where do you need to rest in the care of a loving father who dearly, dearly wants to have relationship with you? 
we're called to share this message with the living. There's, there's two applications, briefly. The first one is this. Some of us today need to repent of our pride and we, at, we need to ask God to teach us to depend upon him. It's not an easy lesson, but it's a good lesson. In our, in our personal strength, when God humbles that, he does it because he wants us to know him more. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't, he doesn't want to just take you to a place after here. He doesn't want to just promise you an eternity, which he does. He actually wants to walk with you in the challenges you face today. Everything we hold on to gives us an opportunity to pray, God, I'm holding on to this. God, I give this to you. God, lead me in the next right step and pray that prayer of dependence. And for some of us, that prayer is going to happen a lot because we're pretty self-independent. Second way to apply this is, is to share the message with the living. Daniel faithfully follows God while exiled in Babylon. He's not in an easy place, but he faithfully follows God. What would it look like for you to faithfully follow God in the moment God has placed before you today? What, what, what does that look like for you? I love the principles from Daniel. We need to have affection for those who are far from God. We don't, we don't need to preach condemnation for the sake of anger or justice. God will have his justice. We need to proclaim the message truthfully of God's redeeming grace and how God wants to transform their hearts and their minds to follow him. We have to have affection for those who are far from God, some, some of us need to ask God to give us love for people who are ungodly. We need to deliver the right message with the right heart. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit to know how to tailor this message appropriately to every person that God places in front of us. And we need to offer spiritual advice as led by the Spirit and say this, my friends, we can't change anyone. We can't change anyone but you can introduce them to the one who can. And you can walk beside them and continually present them with the truth of God's word and an arm around the shoulder and say, you're not alone. I'm here with you on this journey we call life. Wherever you're at today, my prayer for you is this, that you learn that the greatness of your life is not in what you do, it's actually found in being dependent upon the God who meets you this very moment. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, we thank you that life and power is not found in our own strength. We thank you, God, that when we are weak, you are strong. And God, there's many of us today who feel weak. There's many of us today who feel powerless. God, would you lead us and guide us by your spirit into what is holy, right, and true. May we trust you for what we need this moment because that's all we've been given. God, for those of us uh, who are walking in stubborn pride today, Lord, may we not have to learn the lesson as deeply as Nebuchadnezzar 
may we more quickly come and repent, break with our sins, and walk in relationship with you so that by your power we might do what is right. And by your death and your resurrection, we might be found pleasing and have a life that is cleansed of sin and guilt. God, I I thank you for the people whom you've placed in our lives. Give us a heart for people far from you. Some of them, God, are are in our families. Some of them are in our neighborhoods. Um, Each of these people, God, give us a heart for them, a brokenness to meet them with the truthfulness of the message of the gospel with a right heart as you give us opportunities. God, we don't want to walk ahead of your spirit. We want to walk in step with your spirit. We want to trust you for what we need today. And God, even with, even with arms out and, and hands open, we don't want to clench or clutch to anything We want to receive from you all we need. Thank you, God, for being our all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.